1 Peter chapter 2, looking at verse 11, and we're going to try to finish. We'll just see how the Lord profits that. Beginning in chapter 2, verse 11, dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lust which war against the soul, having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works which they shall behold. <clears throat> Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be to the king as supreme or unto governors, as unto them that are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of them that do well. For so is the will of God that in well-doing you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men as free and not using your liberty for a cloak of maliciousness, but as the servants of God. Honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Servants, be subject to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the froward. For this is thankworthy if a man for conscience uh, toward God endure grief and suffering and wrongdoing uh, wrongfully, for what glory is in it, if when you be buffeted for your faults, you shall take it patiently. But if when you do well and suffer for it, take, and you take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. For even uh, uh, hereunto were you called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow in his steps, who did no sin. Neither was guile found in his mouth, who, when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously, who his own self bare in our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, being dead to sins, should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes ye were healed. For ye were sheep going astray, but now returned unto the shepherd and bishop of your souls. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this good night. Thank you, Lord, <clears throat> for the word of God that is eternally settled. Lord, I pray tonight that you would provide for us illumination. Lord, I, I, I know the material that's in front of us, Lord. You've shown it to me. I wish there were hundreds hearing tonight. <clears throat> I wish the sanctuary was full. Lord, I can only pray that you would illuminate and impress upon those of us that are here the importance of this passage. Father, I pray that through the power of the Holy Spirit, you'd teach us, guide us, convict us, charge us, Lord, with our responsibilities. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to talk to you tonight. I, let me back up and give you a title to this section uh, we've been looking along this line uh, i would say that uh, this remainder of verse of chapter two is a charge to the born again as it relates to relationships or as it relates to connections as it relates to how we get along in this world if if we 
are truthful truly from chapter 2 verse 11 all the way through chapter 4 verse 6 uh, is, is concerning relationships or as we stated in the title connections as believers. You might even say that uh, these chapters concern our couple of weeks ago that uh, the Apostle Paul speaks in Philippians chapter 3 of our heavenly citizenship. And that word there, citizenship, politumai, has to do with how we uh, uh, behave because of where we're from. It's how we're identified based on where we're from. And, and he would say our conversation, that word politumai, our citizenship, is in heaven and and, and by that, I've always believed that our citizenship should betray us. Uh, we ought to be known by where we're from. If you, uh, and I don't want to get bogged down here, but if you go to another country, they're going to know that you're from America simply by the way you walk, by the way you dress, and by the way you talk. In, in fact, they're going to know from any one of those three things. They could be blindfolded and hear you speak and know you're from America. If they've got any education, uh, they know you're from the southern portion of America. They know where you're from. They can tell by the way you're dressed. That, that citizenship, it, that's okay that it betrays you. It's okay with me that if I go to Jamaica or, or Haiti or Peru, they know I'm a gringo. That's, that's fine with me because that's what I am. Listen, it's, it's that much more important that folks in the world know you're a Christian. Your, your character, your, the way you deport yourself ought to betray you. When Peter was warming himself by the, uh, the fire, uh, the, 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 little girl, the young lady had already said to him, you're one of them, and he kept denying it. And then the bystanders just said, listen, we know you're one of them because your speech betrays you. He wasn't particularly talking like a Christian. He was talking like somebody from Galilee. They knew where he was from. It's to, to um, uh, we're going to see it tonight, our working relationships uh, next week, we'll see uh, as it is uh, concerns or as it relates to our marriage relationship, as it concerns the church fellowship, as it concerns suffering. There's a way. There's a there's a predescribed manner that we ought to act and react and interact and correlate. It's it's been defined for us. It's been exemplified for us. It's been shown for us. It is but anybody that's been watching knows and I hope tonight that we can admit it to ourselves. I want you to see this first in verses 11 and 12. 
he speaks to them and he's talking about as it concerns the world, how we ought to uh, act, how our connection, our relationship, our interaction should be as it relates to the world uh, in which we are, uh, that is around us. He says there that I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lust. And then he says, having your conversation honest among the Gentiles. Do you see that? He's, he's giving us this idea of how we interact with what is around us, the world around us. We would, we would expect to see the word cosmos uh, because that has to do with the system that we're in. But he doesn't give us that word, but he basically is defining that word with, with the, the, the text that he's using. It's the idea of the society in which we live. He first talks about our relationship with the flesh, and then he talks about our interaction with non-believers. I want you to see first, though, how he describes our, that is the born again, the begotten again, our literal place in this society or in this world, if you will. He uses two words, sojourners and pilgrims. I beseech you, I beg of you, that you uh, as strangers, or it, depending on your scripture, it, should, it can also say sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lust. We're gonna look at the, the problem with the flesh in a moment, but I want you to think about this word sojourner and then this word pilgrim because they mean something very implicit, very specific. The, the sojourner, that means that we're foreigners. We do not belong here, but, but we are here. And since we're here and we are born again, even though we don't belong here, we ought to be thriving here. It is, it's that idea that we're not one of those with whom we interact, but we are among those with whom we interact. We're not of the world, but we're in the world. That's what the Lord Jesus would say. We, we would uh, commonly say, you know, we don't call this place home, but, and, but, and that's true. Uh, the Bible says that Abraham was looking for a, a glorious home that Literally, literally, Abraham was looking for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Or, or if you want to see that more, more uh, direct, it is the idea, a city whose foundation is God. It's built on God. Amen. And that's, Abraham was a sojourner. He's an example for us that he was a stranger, a sojourner in a strange land, because of his expectation of the promise that had been given to him. You and I, and every other believer for that matter, should be so looking forward to glory. This is one of those places where I'm telling you, if you're honest with yourself, you're going to be challenged right here. We ought to be so looking forward to glory and, and the, the glory that awaits us in heaven that we are prepared to go at any moment and that indeed, like John the Beloved, we would say, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. But unfortunately, many Christians build their dreams here. They put down roots here. They build relationships 
that are only supported by life in this world. And the idea of leaving this world becomes somewhat painful. It's not that they don't desire heaven because it's a lot better than the alternative. But rather, they want a full and glorious life in this world as this world defines it or sees it. And then they still want what heaven has to offer. They want the best of both worlds. And listen, there, there's an entire group of people out there that will teach you you can have that. But it's false. It's apostasy. And, and so they, they want basically their cake and, and eat it too. It's, it's akin to the same thing. And so Peter says here, listen, you're a sojourner in this land. That doesn't mean that you can't have things and you can't have some roots, but your roots ought not be wrapped around your things. You are looking for and hastening to the coming of the glory of the Lord. Or the coming, the day of the coming of the Lord. You want to go there. You want to be there. And you're building relationships here that are going to be there with you. Every relationship you have here, it ought to be intently developed so that it will be there with you. And, and you know I've done all I can do to build a relationship that will be eternal with that person if they... Uh, don't choose it. There's nothing else I can do. I'm a sojourner. I'm not staying here. Amen. And then he, then he says a pilgrim. And pilgrims, that means that we must be obliged to live in a place that is not our home until we inherit the place that is. That we are not trying to fit in. Listen to me right here. There's an entire generation, two, three decades worth of the church that's been poisoned with this idea. We're not trying to fit in. We're not trying to blend in or become like those around us because we know that the place we're going is so much better than the place we are and how we are is perfect for the place we're going. Amen. We're not supposed to fit in here. By the way, that doesn't mean that you're caustic and offensive. No. Okay, this passage teaches right the opposite of that. But you're looking for that. You're wanting to be in that place. As we seek to maintain our form as sojourners and pilgrims, there are some enemies that we're going to face. That's what Peter's saying here. The first one he mentions is the flesh. But we could very easily say this, and you've heard us say it before, uh, the three greatest enemies of the Christian are the flesh, the world, and Satan. In, in, in large part, Peter's speaking to that truth. That, that the very first thing that you're going to uh, face is the world. And you, you don't want to fit into this world system. The, the world system is a problem. We have to maintain our form as pilgrims and sojourners. And then he comes right on back and he says, look, there's also the battle between the believer and the flesh. The flesh is also known as the old nature. But look, this is, this is truth right here, okay? The, 
the old nature uh, is always going to be there. The, the, the battle between the believer and the flesh is continual. In fact, let me say it to you this way. Uh, this is how uh, the Lord gave it to me. If the battle between the flesh and the believer is so dependable that if you were not experiencing a stiff resistance from the flesh, there is a great likelihood that the flesh is winning the battle and your conscience has been seared. Like if you get to a place to where you say, this flesh thing, I've got that whipped. Let me tell you who's whipped. It's the spiritual side of you that's been whipped. Your conscience has been seared. The, the old Adamic nature is resilient and resistant. It will not go quietly into the night. It's not just going to all of a sudden, after 35 or 40 years, decide, well, I've lost this one. I'm going to let it go. No, it's going to fight for every inch of ground it can get. And it's going to continue to fight. And it's going to come up with new ways to fight. And the world is going to su supply it with all of the input it needs to fight. And fight more effectively than you if you're not walking in the spirit. This is, this is the idea here. But many times it seems like the battle is over. But what has truly happened is the front has shifted. And you don't know it. I spent a considerable amount of time just contemplating this today. But, but for example, there are people, I've, I've talked to them, and look, I'm a people. <laughs> I, you know, I are one, I get it. But there are folks that you talk to, and, and they'll say, you know, well, used to, and, and maybe they'll say this, well, I used to struggle with jealousy and envy, but... I've defeated that part of the old nature. But in fact, this is what has occurred. They have actually satisfied that particular part of the old nature with possessions and comfort. And they don't have, they're right. They don't have a problem with jealousy and envy anymore. Now they have a problem with greed and selfishness. The front has shifted and they don't even know it. Oh man, I... I can see she got a problem with jealousy. I used to have that too. <laughs> right? And the front is shifted in the, and they're, they're over here claiming victory and they're getting tore up on the backside because the front just moved. It, likewise, many baser forms of the flesh will naturally mature and conform to a polite society. And when that happens, oftentimes a Christian will claim victory over it. Well, I used to have a foul mouth. But God delivered me from that. Well, no. Uh, you were a 21-year-old redneck. And now you're a 53-year-old dad. <laughs> Age delivered you from that foul mouth. You didn't win that victory by, by a spiritual means. You just grew up. And so don't claim victory right here. Let's look around and see some other spiritual areas where you need to grow up. Amen. 
Because the, the battle's still going on. I was having a conversation with a guy uh, one time, and I don't want to offend anybody here, and, and so that's not my goal, but um, the word secular, I want to define that for you because that was obvious the, that that was the shortcoming in the conversation he and I were having. Secular is denoting attitudes and activities or other things that have no religious or spiritual basis. That's what secular means, okay? No religious or spiritual basis. And so this guy said to me one time, I was a preacher at the time, I, probably a pastor at the time. Hey, have you heard, I don't remember the artist, but you know, have you heard George Jones' latest song? Something along those lines. And I was trying to be polite. I had offended people in the past. And I said, no, uh, man, I don't, it, I don't listen to any secular music. He said, me either. I did before I got saved, but if it ain't country or gospel, I'll listen to it now. <laughs> See, there was, a, there was a maturity thing that had taken place in that man's life, but it wasn't a spiritual maturity. It was a, a conforming to what is supposed to happen when you grow up. But the spiritual battle wasn't won. He thought it was won. We, so that battle is never going... Just because we mature or grow out of a desire to partake of a certain type of entertainment doesn't mean that we no longer struggle with wicked desires of the flesh. We have to recognize that the flesh lives as long as we are in the mortal realm. It's going to continue. So at 95 years old, you're still going to be contending with the flesh. You may be too old to do anything about it, but it's still there. Right? So, so he says, look, you, you got to worry about the flesh. Keep your eyes on it. Then look what he says there. He talks about the Gentiles. Abstain from fleshly lust, which war against the soul. Having your conversation honest among the Gentiles. That whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. So this is what he's saying. By the way, don't get hung up on the word Gentile. Peter is writing to Christian, born-again Jews who have been dispersed through the diaspora because of persecution. And the Gentile simply means a non-believer. Okay, because if they were born again, they wouldn't be a Gentile. They're the church. He's talking about non-believers. So it comes right over to you and I. It's simply referring to a non-believer. And so, so Peter says... Uh, listen, you, you've got to have your conversation that there again is those words that we talked about. I didn't look today, uh, anastrophe maybe, polituamai maybe. Uh, it has to do with your behavior, the way you carry yourself. It's not specifically the words that you speak. It has to do with your behavior, your conduct. Have that in front of the Gentiles and have it so good that when they want to speak bad of you, they won't be able to. And in doing that, you may win them to the Lord. We're talking about a lifestyle evangelism that, that draws people to you because you've got something they don't have and they're drawn to it and you lead them to the Lord so that in the day of God, uh, they're going to glorify Him. 
Because they've been won. They've been born again. And so it's the idea that, that for the born again believer in today's society, we're not likely going to face the gallows or, or the lion or the flame of the persecutor. But we are in constant disagreement with the way of life of those who are not born again. It should be a constant rub. Not something that you are continually condemning them for, but something that you see that you recognize is wrong, is ungodly, is unhealthy, and that you are praying for them. You see it. There's a constant issue there. And, and we're seeing that. And we can rest assured that, that they're going to be against whatever we stand for. And, and, and it would be easy to get into an isolationist frame of mind. But that's what Peter's saying. Don't do that. Don't isolate yourself. You stay in there, but you, you act like a Christian. You behave like a Christian. You do the things that a Christian would do and, and, and uh, conduct yourselves in such a way as to further convict and convince them that, that our living, our way of living is right. God will use that to win them. And then they'll be born again. Our first responsibility as a believer is in relationships with ourselves and with the world around us. That we are to stay committed to the Lord and to lead others by our example. And in order to do that, we must indeed be in the world, but not of the world. So then look at the next thing he talks about. It's as it relates to the government. Look at verse 13. Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man. Every ordinance of man. For the Lord's sake. Whether it be the king. As a supreme. Or unto a governor. Or as unto them that are sent by him. Alright so. This is what he's saying. The, the key word in these next several verses, by the way, we're going to see it this week and next week. The key word is submit. We are to submit to the government. Slaves are to submit to their masters. Wives are, submit, are to submit to their husband. The young believer is to, to submit to the elder. That's All of that is coming over these next 45 verses or so. That's key. Uh, Lyle states it this way, the ultimate Christian answer to persecution, detractors, and critics is that of a blameless life, a conduct beyond reproach, good citizenship, in particular, submission is a supremely Christ-like virtue. Yes, sir. Don't you think right here real hard. Yes, sir. <clears throat> Every ordinance of man, for the Lord's sake, People struggle with this idea of submit. I struggle with this idea of submit. Man, in January when that HOA was giving me fits, submit was not the right word to say around me. Uh, I had some other words I wanted to say. Communism, that came to my mind. Anarchy, that came to my mind. That's what I'm about to do is commit some anarchy. But submit... And we do it for the Lord's sake. And in fact, Paul would say, as unto the Lord. So that when I submit to you, 
I'm not submitting to you. I'm submitting unto the Lord because the Lord placed you in that position in my life. You're put there by God. He, he, he talks about this idea of, of human governments. And, and listen, Paul also says this in Romans 13. Human governments are instituted by God. Every one of them. It the, let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Every one. That, look, we, we he see here kings and governors. Uh, what I'm telling you that reads is presidents, senators, congressmen, governors, mayors, state representatives, every one of them. Whatever is going on, whatever amount of authority they have, they got it simply because God gave it to them. Whether or not we agree with it is beside the point. And we are to submit to that. Even if they're not Christians, they're still God's servant. It's hard to say, likely hard to hear, but even the rule of a dictator, even tyranny, even corrupt government is better than no government or no rule at all. Because no rule at all, the absence of rule ends in anarchy and no society can continue for long under anarchy. And God is not the author of confusion. Every governor, every government, every law, every ordinance... That rule applies to the local official as well as the national. The command is to submit. That is obey. We are to be, as born-again believers, model citizens, keeping the ordinance and the laws of men as obedient citizens. That's remarkable to many and a testimony to all. Now, there's an exception. I know everybody's waiting on that. <laughs> right? You know, what if? Give me that what if, give me, give me the back door. What if the only exception is if the rule of law commands a believer to act contrary to the revealed will of God and the revealed will of God is the written word of God. And then, and only then should the believer resist, but listen closely. Resist, that resistance is not to be militant. It is not to be rebellious. It is not to be anarchist. It's not to be that type of disobedience. As we have witnessed in the scriptures and in many martyr accounts, it is to be obedience, in obedience to God, yet still keeping the example that Christ set for us. That's right. So the will of God for the believer is that they may be put to silence the accusations of the non-believer with their good conduct, with their good conduct, and they could find little or no ground to accuse us on. So think about Daniel. When they wanted to get Daniel out of the way, there's only one way to do it. We have to pass a law that is contrary to his relationship with his God. That's the only way we're going to get him because other than that, he's perfect. That, that, is, uh, that ought to be the goal and desire of every believer to be blameless 
as it is relative to the government unless the government is in direct contradiction with the word of God. And even then, we are to remain obedient until challenged. Just like Daniel, he just continued to pray. Daniel, Daniel was, he was right there. He was number two. All he had to do was say, King, come on, man. You've heard somebody say that before. But do you know what's going on? He didn't do that. He let it happen and he kept on praying. Just like the, his, his counterparts, the three Hebrew, Hebrew children, they didn't bow. They didn't pitch a fit. They didn't jump up and down. They just didn't bow. And when they were brought in front of Nebuchadnezzar, they were honest about the fact that they didn't bow. And then when Nebuchadnezzar said, look, you either bow or I'm going to throw you in here. They said, look, we're not going to bow. God is able, but even if he don't, we will not bow. That's the, the issue with what we have a lot of going on today is that too many Christians have turned into social justice warriors and apologists for Christianity. And that's playing right into the hands of the enemy because you look just like one of them. You act like them. You talk like them. You yell like them. You are dis discourteous like they are. And, and it plays right into their hands. And I would say this, and I'm not trying to be cute, but if we had as many people praying as we did picketing and protesting, we would likely be enjoying a revival of enormity. But rather than prayer and obedience, we had pride and obstinance, both of which are counterintuitive to the believer. Most of these quote unquote Christian um, activists, they probably don't even have a home church. It's not, it's not about, it's not about the, the, what God has told them to do. It's about, can they get noticed? Can, can they get some authority? Can they cash in on something that's happening? Can they become an influencer? Can they, whatever. And, and the church, I started noticing, or I remember noticing it back when the Ten Commandments deal got hot. Church would hold hands with anybody to get out there and argue. We shouldn't do that. You won't find anywhere in the Word of God tells you you ought to argue over the Word of God. In, in fact, uh, you will find Paul saying that it is alive. And it is powerful. And it is sharper than any two-edged sword. And he didn't say it, but I'm pretty sure he meant you don't need to defend it. It can defend itself. And th th this is the picture that he's painting. Look at verse 16. As free and not using your liberty for a cloak of maliciousness, but as servants of God. Here we have this, this picture that, and, and I want you to get this. We are free. If you're born again, you're free. Amen. You're free to do whatever you want to do. But this is the problem. We're free in that we're not in bondage to any man or any government. We're free in Christ, but through God's economy, we may be under the authority of someone else. And that's not ours to question. 
It is shocking to me how, and I've said this just a few weeks ago, it's shocking to me that we can have a, a relatively lucid understanding of exactly what the Lord Jesus Christ went through, both in his life and in the last days of his life, in the last day of his life, with the trial and the mocking and the beating and the rejection and the crucifixion and the pain that he suffered. And then we, we can have a relatively lucid understanding of that. And in the same mind, we can come to a place where we believe, well, all I got to do, all that's necessary for me is to just pray a prayer. I get a little in, in, in doctrine, inoculation of the Holy Spirit and I'm going to live my life any way I want to and God's going to be thrilled when I get home. How do those two things agree with one another? And, and if, it, if it wasn't Christ that we look at, look at Peter, look at the Apostle Paul, look at James, look at John the Beloved, look at any martyr that lived, that lived in the last 10 years in China or Indonesia. If the idea is that just because we're free doesn't mean that we can ignore the rule of law or the authority that God has put in our life. Liberty is not equal to license. Freedom does not equal lawlessness. Therefore, we cannot justify evil disobedience with some kind of pseudo-spiritual excuse. We must live as a bond servant of God. Right. Everything else falls into place after that. Mm -hmm. God is sovereign. God's in control. Verse 17. Honor all men. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the king. This is very simple. No relationship can be left out. There's no relationship in your life that can be left out. Honor all men, honor every person, those who are brothers and those who are not, those who are kings and those who are not. In doing this, we revere and respect God because we're all made in the image of God and it's all is ordained of God. And so we should remember always that Christ died for everyone, even the most unworthy of who I am. We do not have to love them. It doesn't say love them. It says honor them. And in doing so, we honor God. I'm going to have to quit right there. I wanted to get a few more verses in, but we're running a little over time. I would encourage you uh, to spend some time reading this passage. Praying through it. We, we have a... And by we, I don't mean particularly Houston Baptist Church. But neither are we completely free of it. We, we have a, a, the church in America right now has a nasty habit of getting involved in things that they ought not be involved in. That's right. And talking about things they ought not be talking about. And it does, it's, it's just like picking the scab off a wound. Does nobody any good. What we ought to be doing is asking God, Lord, what's next? What, what do I need to be doing? 
And we ought to be living in such a way that we can win those who are around us. A hundred to one, I would put prayer and evangelism above activism all day. Two of those have a proven record. One of them does not. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this night. Thank you, Lord, for this word. Father, I pray that you would strengthen us. I pray that you would encourage us, enable us. Father, help us to look within our own hearts at our own actions. Father, we love you tonight. We're thankful for all that you do in Jesus' name. Amen.